Hello and welcome to another episode of the 212 Podcast, a podcast that does a deep dive into the people in the arts and entertainment industry. If you like what you hear, please give us a like and subscribe. Our next guest on the podcast this week is a multi-award winning producer. DJ, as well as a Eurovision Song Contest holder. One of his biggest hits, Sandstorm, has sold over 2 million copies and has over 238 million views on YouTube. It's not the only thing he is famous for, a man with as distinguishable facial hair as Charlie Chaplin and Tom Selleck. Um, please welcome to the podcast, Darud. How are you and where are you today? Uh, I'm in my daily barber shop visit, grooming my uh, my goatee to be perfect. And now you're not doing video, so I'm really, really disappointed. <laughs> Don't worry, there'll be a picture on uh, on the socials uh, of that of that marvelous goatee. Talking <laughs> of uh, YouTube videos, I only just found this just because obviously we were doing this recording with you. But the large amount of views that you've got. But do you know what current band was the quickest to 200 million views, and it took four days? Uh, no idea. BTS. Oh, well, I mean, that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, go on. yeah it took me, I don't know how many years and, uh, you know, it's uh, good for them. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Enough for fact checking onto the episode. We always start by talking about kind of where you grew up and whether the area you grew up in influenced your kind of love for music and, you know, who was around you at that time. So where did you grow up and, and how did you get into it? I guess, where was your first taste of, of music? Hmm. So the first, um, like 19 years of my life, I lived in a small village called Hinnerjoki uh, in southwestern Finland. We had like 900 people. Uh, everybody waves hi to each other and so on. I would like sing uh, in a like school choir and stuff until my voice broke and never sang publicly since, I guess. Well, I actually kind of do because I have a, have a stream on Fridays where I DJ and play music, but I also just freely sing on top of my stuff and ruin it for everybody. <laughs> but uh, music is that that's just what it does to me. Like I kind of lose track of time and space and who's with me because if, if a song is good or if a melody is good, <clears throat> I want to sing, hum, scream, jump up and down, whatever to it. Yeah. I mean, I don't know exactly when I found music like that to be special or that I was conscious of it. But my mom tells me this story where in Finland we have national radio and there were at that time maybe one or two channels that people would be listening to or existed. And uh, one of them played music and, you know, they had like a talking DJ or, you know, host. And they played this one song called uh, One Way Ticket. It is a... Uh, there's an actually finished version of it as well, but I think that was the original English version, a one-way ticket, and it was on like two mornings in a row around a time when I was waking up. And the third morning, it wasn't on the radio, and I refused to get up because it wasn't on. And so that's like my first memory of music mattering to me or being something that you know, connected with me. And around the time my mom then bought a cassette tape recorder thing that worked on, on, you know, whatever big D batteries or something like that. And she was hunting down the song on the radio and finally was able to record it. And so then I could listen to it whenever I wanted. Some people kind of do it the other way around where they kind of play an instrument or play something and then they kind of discover their voice uh, later on. So mm -hmm. you've kind of done the, you know, you've reverse engineered it. Were your family singers as well? Uh, no, not really. Like, well, that's not true. My mom actually, the, the, even these days, uh, she's actually a karaoke host at this, um, well, where she, where she lives at this local bar or restaurant. And um, she sings herself as well. My brother is a really good singer. He's won some uh, contests and stuff in Finland on, on uh, like a karaoke and not, not voice or idol, but more on a traditional what would I call it, like folk song or that's a particular kind of music here in Finland that is, he, he's singing. My sister sings as well. 
But at the same time, growing up, I wasn't really around people singing and playing instruments. But I just fell in love with music in a sense that I realized after my teen years or even after I started my career that I was into music way deeper than other people were or most people were like everybody listens to music everybody shares you know CDs back in the day vinyl and you know share their likes and dislikes but you know not a native speaker of English at that point I still tried to understand the lyrics I still tried to write them down I still tried to like pick them apart in my head you know what instruments goes where and whatnot but I was hindered greatly because I didn't play any instrument so it wasn't actually until I was like 19 or 20 years old when I started making my own music and that was because I started studying at a new school and a couple of my new buddies there showed me that you could actually make music with computers. Uh, we wouldn't need that great live uh, playing chops. You could just uh, play something in. If it was um, off time-wise or a bum note, you could just correct it and this and that. And all of a sudden I started hearing layers of everything and I started figuring out what I hear as a complex one piece of music that I hum to now has, you know, five or 10 or 50 layers that I can kind of build myself one by one. And uh, it's not about the live uh, on the fly kind of playing. Again, I'm still not a great live player, but I, I have my keys down a little better now. But I think uh, my, my skill is sort of in the very averageness of first being a music lover and uh, having this sort of average mainstream-ish melodic taste and then that's what I try to kind of make myself as well and uh, I hear when stuff's right um yeah and I just I was gonna say it's it's I do want to get into the, the the kind of small town to big towns part as well but I wonder, did you see a pathway, you know, where you were living? Because obviously where you were living it, it, mm -hmm. uh, or where you, were, where, where you grew up is, you know, 10, 15,000 people max. Was there a kind of ceiling for growth and you, you needed to, to kind of, uh, get, get bigger? <laughs> well, the funny thing is uh, the, the village I lived in actually had like 900 people. And then uh, later on when I went to upper elementary and, and – uh, my college or whatever the thing is in Finland. Uh, it's not called that, but the equivalent. I mean, then there was like maybe 10,000 people in that town. I never had a uh, career plan or even a dream. Like, honestly, my biggest dream after I started making music, since I wasn't a DJ, I just wanted to burn a track on a CD and take it to a local DJ, go in a corner and see what it did on the dance floor if anything and like that was my dream i did send some demos to like review magazines or review radio programs and stuff and i did send them to a couple of labels but my music was mostly instrumental electronic stuff and it was not in vogue in finland at that time and i got several of like declined letters while nice and polite but still and um Again, I'm not putting myself down, wasn't then, but but I thought that, you know, the things that I heard on the radio, the artists I looked up to, they were amateur on level 100. I mean, a professional level, level 100, and I was like amateur on level 10, and the gap was so huge in my mind that I wasn't even dreaming of being compared, being a professional, be anything. And so I was just making music for the for the fun of it tinkering and and uh, learning stuff and i mean there's <laughs> there's a certain element of luck and certain element of skill in in a lot of uh, these things but i mean the era that you kind of came up in you you know you had songs around the time you know kencraft 400 boom funk mcs cassius mr scruff chemical brothers did you feel like there was something happening uh, like, did you feel there was like something with in that genre that, that kind of like was grabbing you? Well, I, I make electronic dance music because I don't know how to play live instruments well enough. So that's the starting point. And then I was in love with dance music before I started making it. And I would uh, go to these earlier, you know, underage, these youth halls. There were a couple of places where they basically had like discos. DJ, DJ would play music in some places, not 
even beat mixing, but just playing song after song and so on. And uh, electronic dance music in terms of like house and early trance was what I liked when I went out and clubbing and, and events. So then I guess that's why I started making it. And, uh, but I've never categorized myself strictly as a trans DJ that I mostly, I think I am categorized as, but I've always loved different styles of trans house, all kinds of electronic stuff. And I mean, I, I grew up listening to all kinds of eighties hair metal as well and punk. And I also skateboarded when I was a kid, which I picked up again a couple of years ago. And that included a lot of different kinds of mainstream and underground punk as well. I th kind of draw influences from all kinds of kinds of things. And uh, when I'm in the studio, yes, mostly it is dance music, but it's not that I'm uh, like limiting or thinking only dance music, but I'm just kind of, I can hear a uh, Metallica song or I can hear um, a classical piece and I, I can think, oh, that's a cool melody. That's a cool harmony. And then I just try to somehow incorporate something like that in my own way. And the, um, result is just what it what it becomes i don't kind of care though uh on the back of my head these days of course i'm thinking dance floor as well so i want to play it out in my set so it has to be something in in that framework and you do hear that quite often with you know musicians that they're, they're not kind of stuck to one genre and i'm just thinking there are some that, that kind of do stick to that and don't kind of venture to to anything else were you one of those that would just kind of you within your genre of music were you into the kind of happy hardcore trance drummer bass that jazz jazz instrument <laughs> shadow type vibes in in right in the beginning you know there was for instance german uh, happy hardcore stuff like real hardcore but then there was things like scooter uh that i was a big big fan of and all that definitely affected my some of my first tracks were like 180 bpm really gnarly distorted long kick just like happy hardcore just bang your head on the wall kind of thing then it kind of quite quickly slowed down to the 138 140s sort of the typical trance of the time early 2000s uh, or uh, late 90s and then early 2000s I, I was definitely a fan of it and i was a fan of dance music in general and uh, i want to bring like this sort of um, negative thing up that I've seen a lot when I got into it by, by any means, I wasn't there in the beginning of sort of dance music, but still at that time you could go to a party where you would hear happy hardcore, where you would hear trance and house and drum and bass in the, you know, under the same roof, people would wander from room to room. Sometimes the main stage would swap between genres as well. And everybody was just happy. And what I don't like about the scene sometimes in the, these modern times is that people are very um, sort of tunnel visioned and, and hateful sometimes even between genres. And I, that's, not, that's not something I support because music, uh, first of all, it's very highly situational. You know, you can enjoy a drum and bass party and then you can go in a, you know, next day to a classical concert and it's equally good kind of different vibes of course but um i just um if you don't like something you don't like something that's fine but you don't have to like you know attack on social media or whatever you know and that's and the um, as well isn't it it kind of comes from all angles at the moment uh, uh, as well you know with everything everyone's got an opinion haven't they and with yeah. the with that as well in finland were there any kind of bands that you remember from a young age or uh, electronic dance music uh, acts that, that kind of came over to Finland and then that kind of, you were like, oh yes, this is kind of again, like refueling what you already thought. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's in, interesting, honestly, like there were a couple of bands uh, that I would compare sort of to something like Depeche Mode, for instance, uh, in a sense that they were bands they were they might have had actual drummers for instance they had live keys but it was very synth based 
And then they, at some point, they had drum machines and they had really like programmed drums. Uh, but they would be more on the sung vocal side of things and, and all like just straight up mainstream pop. And I would listen to those bands. And um, then when I started making my own stuff, I, it was kind of cool because I realized I could pick apart their stuff and I realized that I wasn't that different, although I wasn't as commercial and I didn't have many vocals, especially in the beginning. But I could hear they would use something like a 909 or they would use certain synths that I would recognize. And uh, one of them was called Aikakone. It's a time machine, which was really, really popular in Finland. Uh, late 90s, I think, yeah, and early, early 2000s. And uh, I've since met these people and actually uh, a singer from Aikakone, uh, a girl called Sunny, S-A-N-I, she actually toured with me and she actually toured with me in Australia as well, like mid-2000s. I had a couple of vocal tracks, female vocal tracks uh, on my first and second album and she came and sang them live uh, with me. And uh, yeah, now I just remembered I even even had her with me in Australia for a tour. It must be nice to have people from the same area as you. Yeah, and I mean, first of all, that was really cool because I, I had no idea I didn't ever meet them, for instance, or anything like that. I would just listen to them on the radio and CDs and this and that. And then later on, when I my own career started, I got to know some people uh, closer, especially her in that, uh, or from that band and got to take her on the road with me. This was really, really cool kind of circle closing type of thing for me. Is that kind of a pinch uh, yourself always, Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And not, not to mention she's an amazing singer. She's an amazing person. She's gorgeous. And I got to take her on the road with me. So that was absolutely fantastic. I I've had those moments through my career quite a lot and it it's been uh, sandstorm actually turned technically turned 23 yesterday on the 26th of o october like the release date was in 99 and uh over that career and even before that when i when i wasn't uh, you know professionally known i had uh, three or four years at least of uh, music making before that so you know to have that kind of thing as a as a hobby slash profession for this long i've had those sort of circle closing pinch me now moments here and there and uh you never get used to that kind of thing even though of course this is normal day for me it has been for a long time but but it's still like i i try and stop and think and appreciate this kind of stuff quite a lot if you don't mind i, I actually want to share one really cool thing that happened to me uh, of these early uh, influences like um, faithless's insomnia was a huge track for me like probably for everybody in dance music that album and several others of that era as well from them and so in 2000 or 2001 i went to this award show in uk i was presenting an award and i had a feeling that I might have get an award, which I did. It was like, you know, best dance single of the year or something along those lines. I was sitting at this round table with my record company reps and a and couple of other artists from the record company. And uh, we ate dinner and it was kind of this gala type of thing. And uh, I stood up to go to the toilet and I pushed my chair back and bumped into somebody. And I looked over casually, just said, sorry, looked back forward and did huge double take because it was Maxi Jazz from Faithless. And the whole table next to me was actually Sister Bliss and Rolo and, and Maxi and whoever's in the band and their entourage. <laughs> and I was just flabbergasted seeing my, my, my heroes right then and there. Did you and, talk to uh, I don't, I prob probably said something really dumb. Yeah. I was going to say, did you, do you remember saying anything to them? No, I mean, I, I said something, uh, we didn't have a, a long discussion, but uh, I, I did later did go and uh, introduce myself and basically just, you know, you know, uh, thank them and, you know, told them much respect or, you know, that good cliche, typical stuff that, you know, one well, should express, but, but possibly a cooler way than I did.
<laughs> and they and they were kind of around. I mean, they were just such a mammoth, uh, you know, just a, such yeah. a big beast um, around the same time as as you as well. So, you know, just yeah, that must must have been really surreal. And um, one of the, the other things I was going to say, just in terms of the surrealness, is. You know, you did go from, as we we mentioned, you know, the kind of 900 now that you're saying to then 11,000 and then to living in Atlanta, 2000s to, to 2013, which has a population of 500,000, which, again, it, you know, it comes back to that, you know, you're going bigger and bigger. How was that for you and at the height of your career kind of, you know, going to experience a place like Atlanta and, and given the fact that they you know, predominantly there's a lot of rappers, you know, Outkast, T.I., Killer mm. Mike, Goody Mob, they were all, all there. The dance scene doesn't seem like it would have been as big there, or am I wrong? No, well, let's just say I did not move to Atlanta for uh, dance music scene reasons, and uh, you're definitely correct. It's way more uh, known of hip-hop, R&B, that kind of stuff. I actually moved to Atlanta for personal reasons. My, my wife's... Uh, dad got sick so my my um father-in-law uh and uh we went there to support him and um ended up staying there for like six or so years and um i don't know like i understand totally what what you're saying and what what people would think you know it's a big city but i wasn't really thinking like that and um i was feeling it sort of obviously looking around uh, driving around, especially traffic in Atlanta sucks. But but what I've noticed is that I, when we moved there and when we got our own place in Roswell, Georgia, which is right, you know, 20 minutes or something north of downtown Atlanta, you know, you tend to, uh, in your everyday life, when I had my nine to five between gig weekends and so on, I would just you know, wake up, uh, do sort of nine to five type of schedule work wise. Then I would go play ice hockey. I played hockey since I was a kid. I did the same when I lived in Finland and I do the same now when I live back in Finland, it's just routine. So it was not like I was every day, like, Oh, I live in a huge big city and every opportunity is here. In fact, I probably played the least in Atlanta in any, from any other city in the United States. And which is kind of funny that I, you know, I lived there for six years and I think I played there during that time, maybe once or twice, really. And um, the now, I mean, I played there plenty, but, but that time was just something that didn't happen like that. I don't know, like those things are the, the, the grandness of something. When you live it, when you just go day by day and meeting to meeting and gig to gig and whatnot, you don't kind of think like that, or at least I don't. But then there's these moments and times where you kind of stop and think about everything kind of, you know, actively almost like list stuff, or that's at least what I do so that you can kind of draw conclusions and, and, and be grateful and kind of, of course, maybe learn something and think what you would do different going forward or what you would do, do the same because it worked or felt good. So there was definitely no opportunities for a dance rap combination over there. <laughs> Could have been, maybe. But hey, the, uh, the funny thing happened. Like, So I, I moved there around 2007 or so. So Atlanta had two huge radio stations that you know everybody was listening to. One was like this alt-rock metal kind of thing. But on a sort of commercial side, you would hear Metallica and you would hear just sort of the mainstream pop rock, maybe punk-ish stuff. And then uh, the other one was heavily hip-hop, just slow, whatever, 90 BPM, 100 BPM, proper, you know, commercial hip-hop. And the, the time I was there, the uh, EDM explosion in US happened. And uh, two or three years in, all of a sudden, especially the hip hop station, but both of them, but the hip hop station especially changed from that hip hop sound to like 128 BPM EDM. But interestingly, still like Luda and Usher and Snoop were the vocalists, i.e. rappers. It was just weird. But uh, I mean, it was the opportunity and the, the scene just changed. And even the, the metal or more more of the metal alt rock station went 
heavily EDM at one point, and then you would hear like an occasional Metallica track or something like that every couple of hours or whatever. I mean, it's not like I listen to radio all the time, but you know, driving around, I did. And uh, looking back, that was, was such an interesting time because, uh, especially Atlanta, going from very deep south hip hop to EDM. But then there were the couple of uh, very, you know, sort of ear to the ground rappers who just hooked up with um, new people or, you know, changed styles or adapted towards that as well. I mean, obviously, they never stopped doing their own original hip hop stuff either, but they were quick to, uh, uh, you know, jump on that. Were there any things like over there that you, uh, while you were living there, that were kind of like differences that surprised you and then things that you were prepared for? So that kind of like opposites? Well, I, um, I'd been working in US since 2000, I think. And uh, Finland is a very sort of Western country, uh, you know, with all the, you know, tech and everything that everybody else has. And, you know, I'd seen movies and watched TV and I thought of US as very sort of similar. But then at the same time, going there and living there changed, changed that view quite drastically. First of all, there's, you know, not everything is glitz and glamour like it's on TV or used to be, you know, I grew up with <laughs> stuff like Beverly Hills 90210 and whatever. And that was my view of America. So that was that was different. And uh, music wise, definitely, I I wasn't used to uh, the, the 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 segmentation like that. You know, you in the U.S. and I'm, this is of course sort of black and white and not true at all exactly. But you know, you went to Miami and you got house music, and you went to to LA and that would be maybe trance and New York would be house and Chicago and Detroit kind of house, but in a different flavor. Atlanta would be heavily just hip hop, you know, of course, Cali would have hip hop as well and whatnot. You know, Finland, everything is mixed. We we don't have I mean, we have our hip hop culture, but it wasn't born here. We we have different kinds of dance music and different kind of pop music that and some very particular to Finland. But if you go outside of two or three of the main cities, all the clubs are bars, restaurants, discos, whatever kind of combo things with two, three, four rooms. One of them is maybe the headlining room, whatever is there that night, a band or a DJ. Another one is Finnish rock and one is karaoke. And I don't know, one could be something else. And that one joint will have all walks of life uh, getting wasted. Half the people don't care who's on doing what. They just come there to party. And um, those masses of people that the big cities in US, for instance, have make it possible for you to have a club dedicated to trance or house or full on underground hip hop or whatever. And that I haven't, hadn't experienced the same way that, that I did when I lived in the US. And you mentioned tech there at the beginning, uh, as you mentioned, you know, you've been making music for over 20 decades now, which um, is a long time. And with that comes kind of the evolution of certain technologies. And, you know, you mentioned, when you were at college and, and some of the apps that you might be using, what did you start out using and, and how's that evolution helped you with, with kind of making your music? There's so, so many, like several, like small and bigger factors here, but I wasn't crazy wealthy when I was studying and started making music. So I couldn't afford buying racks of gear. And so my thing was the, 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 gates of heaven, so to say, opened for me when I learned about tracker softwares, which were like the rudimentary sampler type of things early on. Uh, everybody now, if you mention making music on a computer, they think of something like Pro Tools or, or Logic Pro or whatever, uh, modern digital audio workstation. And uh, Fast Tracker 2 was one of those tracker programs that and that was what I started using and being able to put samples in just having a computer and speakers, you know, and yeah, cheap MIDI keyboard that, that allowed me to start making music. And 
I'm not saying I was ahead of my time, but I was ahead of my time because I was, I couldn't afford real gear, which would have been like a couple of grand of sampler and another couple of grand of actual hardware synthesizer and so on. So I tried to make my music within the computer with those basically free and shareware softwares that would have been just, you know, 50 bucks or whatever it was at that time. Or you could use a lot of stuff for free, find samples online, and uh, that was just that shaped it. And you know, later on, I I, I was so delighted because I my career kind of took off. And I, I have to mention, my first album, my second album, was produced by this guy called J Sixteen. We finalized my tracks in his music that it was way more professional. So I got to like upgrade my uh, my own tiny little kitchen studio demo sound to more professional sound uh, through his gear and his his golden ears as well. But later on, when I sort of started building my studio, I was just at the point where I started earning some money from my gigs and whatnot. My music sold, and I was planning to buy all this gear. And then I didn't because around the time also computers became more powerful, uh, the software developed and all of a sudden you would have like, what I went into was Logic Pro at the time. It had a built-in sampler that would actually replace a hardware sampler. It had a couple of quite early on crude uh, virtual analog synths for instance, but it's just built from there. And like today you can, if you can afford any sort of even moderately powerful mobile phone you can make music and you can make you have more gear in just the palm of your hand that you would have than in my tiny little studio let alone full-on hardware studio which is which is kind of good but it's it's also obviously means that you that there's more people that can you know producers and all that stuff that becomes not redundant but it becomes kind of less you know you can make it yourself yeah the the thing about that is that, um, the, yeah, there's absolutely two or maybe more sides to it. But but I, I think, uh, first of all, I, I'm naively thinking, and sometimes proven, proven wrong a little bit for a second, but I'm naively thinking that the cream still rises to the top. So if you do have talent, if you have ear, if you have a great idea, that'll be found or that, that will, you know, stand out more than, you know, dime a dozen let's make a template track and that's that but it doesn't always happen like that sometimes you hear weird stuff in the mainstream and you just don't understand why it's even there because it either has no idea or it sounds crappy or whatever but in general i'm definitely in support of tech getting cheaper and everybody would have access to to try it out because you know i'm loving my career i'm loving electronic dance music and i probably would still tinker in my tiny little kitchen studio had my career not taken off because i i was so in love with it i i got great satisfaction doing it and uh i was 20 or something when i actually started making music so you know if there's a a five-year-old who gets something like a mobile phone app that you can mess with samples and you know they obviously don't think anything of it but that can ignite the sparkle really early then when they're eight or ten or twelve and they actually start sort of understanding and are capable of thinking logically and building stuff i mean they're gonna have then you know 15 year head start to me you know if you think about it like that and it doesn't mean that everybody has to be a successful dj it doesn't mean they have to be a million dollar producer they can just tinker and have fun in that way i think the more the merrier you know yeah they just do it for the love but i think there's an i obviously like you say like the flip side to that obviously there's you know napster limewire all that stuff that was there but it's you know part of the the joy of like you were saying is kind of not having the money was you know you had to get smart with how you make the music and and smart oh, with yeah. how you how you kind of spend it absolutely and the the thing about uh, the thing about the tech that is a negative, if you let it be, and if you are not conscious of it, is that uh, I call it decision anxiety. And uh, today I sit in my studio and I open my DOM logic 
and I think of what should I do, and then I think of like 40 different synthesizers and a couple of samplers and, and, and 25 compressors and 28 EQs and whatnot. And you, it can just be so overwhelming. And um, me jumping in from a tracker program that had like eight functions versus new modern whatever that have a million functions, like the learning curve is so, so steep if you just jump into it right now. So me learning over 20 something years has been kind of gradual and, and way simpler like that think, versus somebody starting right now. But I think people should have the opportunity now with all the tech and then they but they should realize that it's about the journey not necessarily about like i hate when people ask me like when hey i'm starting now uh what label should i send my track to or what synth should i get to be the quickest to create a hit or something and i want to say like i hope you don't get a hit in the first 10 years because if you're still in it in 10 years and you, then you get a hit, you're actually in it for the long haul and you're not in it for the wrong reasons. And then by the time you're like, say, 10 years in, you've also created uh, an identity and you're, you know, you're ready to take on something taking off. Totally. And I think that's it. That people wanting things, you know, fast and, and sharp and quick at the moment as well. But I mean, you talking about that, I mean, it'd be remiss of me if we didn't talk about Sandstorm, but I wanted to talk more about how you did, did it change kind of overnight there and, and how do you follow? I'd imagine that was an extreme high. And then how do you follow a hit like that afterwards? <laughs> yeah. First of all, I was, uh, for the first couple of years, I was called a sellout because I made a track that became a hit record. The funny thing about that is that, like I said earlier, by, when, around the time I made Sandstorm, I was not dreaming of anything more than a local DJ playing my track in a local club. And I, I, I didn't know how to think bigger. So it's pretty hard to sell out when you, do, when you don't even have a clue. Sandstorm was and still is this like enigma. I, I, if you can clarify to me how and why it take off like that, I, you know, I could have and would have done 10 or 20 or hundred of those along the way to, uh, you know, get the peak up all the time. It was really crazy. And I still am compared to any, any, and every track I present a new track to, especially like record label heads and stuff. It's always like, yeah, but it's not like Sandstorm sound-wise, or it doesn't sound as big a hit as Sandstorm or blah, blah, blah. And I'm just like, yeah, thanks. You know, it, it's my, I've, I've said it's my gift and my curse, and I've kind of dropped the curse out of it because, uh, you know, I'm not all Sandstorm, but I mean, I'm not denying it's definitely carried through in different ways over these uh, you know two decades and and going on and it g gave me my you know start boost put my name out there so that i could get new gigs and i could release new stuff and follow it up with feel the beat was really easy because we didn't create the track the second single feel the beat to be uh, like a continuing hit record because it was mostly done just right after sandstorm and pretty much for practical reasons too we were just in the studio we didn't know sandstorm would be big we had this other idea we had similar kind of energy and vibe in mind for that as well we had the same synthesizers sort of ready to go same kind of mixer setting ready to go and we just went after not even thinking necessarily this is going to be the follow-up for sandstorm but um feel the beat worked really well i mean in uk sandstorm went to number three and feel the beat went to number five i believe and uh that wasn't we, we didn't think that it was a uh, that much worse just dropping two two uh steps from the earlier number three and uh, for whatever reason, Sandstorm has kind of been staying up there and come back in memes and whatnot. And Feel the Beat hasn't. But again, like it wasn't planned to be, you know, equally successful full follow-up, but it just happens to be similar sounding in many, you know, production ways. 
with that sandstorm as well when it when it when it did come out. I mean, you'd you'd be playing at kind of Tomorrowland, which is four hundred thousand people over four days. You know, the the kind of boy in you, like you're saying, that kind of were just like not expecting anything. That must have been quite humbling, but really really exciting as well. Oh yeah, and I mean honestly, like when I started touring, I got a Finnish booking agent first, who well, actually I'm still with, and um, you know. Gradually in, in 2000, 2001, got outside of Finland to um, the Nordics and then Europe, went to Australia and, um, and, and US and so on. I had no time to think about anything. I had these handful of tracks that were my own and we were sort of in a rush to make more with my, my producer than J16 so that I could actually play longer sets live. And, I, and, you know, we were planning on releasing an album as well. And, you know, obviously after a couple of singles. So I just basically went to a promo gig, to regular gig, to autograph signing, to record company meeting. And literally in 2002, take, took my first breather and, and then had time to think about it a little bit. And it, I don't know if anybody believes me or understands it, but it was just so, I just went with it. Next thing, the only thing I, I needed to know was like, where am I going to be next? What I'm going to you know, do to get there? Do I have to plan a set? Blah, blah, blah. And then I just go. And that was just feeling, I think, the max capacity of my brain was just to uh, go to the next one. And and um, uh, interesting thing was I was quite burned out, uh, apparently, uh, in, in 2002 when I took my break. And it was a planned break at that point. I came home from um, whatever the last gig was, and I was so excited. I, I'm going to go in the studio and start working on my second album. I woke up the next morning and the next one and the next one. And it, the, I think it took four months until I actually touched my music making gear next, like for, for real, sat down and started making music. And that was just because you just you, you enjoyed the uh, relaxation. Yeah, and I mean, I was so exhausted, uh, I guess, physically and uh, mentally as well. And uh, mind you, I was not, d you know, doing bad or anything. I, was, I wasn't feeling unwell. I was just going, you know, a million miles an hour and my body was probably screwed, but I, I wouldn't really feel it. I was just excited to do everything. Uh, I wanted, you know... Yeah, I, I wanted to gain anything and everything I got out of whatever was offered. I probably didn't say no to anything. I, you know, did every signing here and there and whatever it was. But then uh, it was just so physically and mentally taxing, I guess, uh, that it, I was just kind of numb for a good while. And I'm not saying this even like uh, that I'm whining here. It was just a, an observation. I didn't even realize how, you know done i was for a while how could how could you you kind of like in you're in it like you're saying you know do, do you remember when it yeah. actually did change and when it got bigger crowds more gigs etc uh well i mean it was there was there were there were these highlight kind of things here and there you know my first gig where i was really blown away by this was in i actually know it was 14th of july in 2000 i believe uh, and i played in ibiza this mtv ibiza 2000 party and uh when i f came there and i saw my name on the same billboard with the likes of paul van dyke underworld armin van helden i i don't know there were many many others and that was my names there between or among them somewhere that was mind-blowing and then I played on that stage. Uh, well, first I was in a backstage and there was another tr stage which was like purely trans, uh, like 100 yards away or something, 100 meters away. And I heard Sandstorm come in and I knew PVD was playing there. So I ran there. We briefly met at a, you know, we had the same record company in Germany. Uh, and he got, he invited me to his booth or his stage and I got to see the second drop of Sandstorm, 5,000 or whatever people going nuts. Uh, mind blown right there. I went back to uh, my stage, watched Underworld perform in, I was in the crowd. And then uh, half an hour later, I was on that stage playing myself for like 10 or 12,000 people in Ibiza, the, like the Mecca of dance music. And that was probably one of the biggest experiences 
and and most meaningful for me because it's just uh you know i was there that i i can't explain that but do you still get goosebumps now saying it oh absolutely and and i there was uh there was this uh broadcast of it and uh, i have that on like um mtv sent me like tapes of that vhs tapes which i've later later digitized but i mean i've watched that here and there it's just it's crazy and i it, it transfers me right there being nervous being just so wet behind the ears not knowing what's ahead you know how i got there really yeah it was it was pretty wild and we we've mentioned uh, you know obviously as you said like if you could replicate as you said you know some record companies they do come to you and say you know make a track like sandstorm or feel the beat but i mean i wonder for you away from that you know it, it, what's your favorite track that you've created and what uh, and one that a certain song that you, you're most proud of or mm. that would be bigger you know okay i'll i'll give you two uh because well first of all these are not the ones that i'm most proud of but these are two that have a good sort of story i'm i'm proud of everything that's released of mine i i love all those tracks and I, there's there's these aha moments there's discovery this and you know oh settling with this and that and that all is part of the thing and there's no track that i i would like not to be released that are out there now but one of the tracks was uh, music, and it was uh, the first single of the second album. And that was definitely one of those things where JS16 and I were working on it, started working on my second album, and we had some label partners uh, in Finland and then other labels outside of Finland who licensed my first album. And so then when we started working on the second one, and so mind you, J16 is the head of 16-inch records who signed me. So he was just very hands-on and he's, uh, he was producing with me. And every label, every sort of partner outside was asking for another Sandstorm. And that was highly sort of intimidating at, at one point in the studio. So we had this other track called Next To You, which was a vocal, sort of softer, trancy vocal thing. And uh, it we released it as a second single but everybody wanted that out first because you know that was kind of getting that was big at that point vocal female vocal trans and we were like so it, it's too obvious if we just go and try and you know fit the market so to say and so that's why the more monotonous harder distorted sounding and whatever music was our choice because we just we decided that if it's going to bomb really bad then at least we'll bomb with a track that is not trying to cater just desperately to to a crowd or commercial chart crowd or so so to say and um i'm i'm very proud that we decided so because while it didn't do great you know commercially it was definitely on some dance charts in especially certain countries really like poland actually and i think australia was one of those as well it did pretty well and was well recognized when i went touring and and played the track uh so so that was sort of cool and uh i've tried to kind of like stick to my guns with stuff that stuff like that but another track that I, I want to mention at this point is my next release. And this is a shameless plug here. Nobody knows what the track is but me. But there's a story that I'm really, really excited about and proud that the track exists. A couple of years ago, I visited my buddy in L.A. or near L.A., the Finnish guy who is there now and makes music videos and produces all kinds of stuff, but it makes dance music as well. We hung out in his studio and he... Um, you know started making we started making music and we decided that you know a couple of older guys who haven't gone out that much other than to perform themselves like what would we want to listen to if we got to go you know do a boys night out and we were thinking of a rave and we started creating this track and were giggling jumping up and down you know slapping high fives it was just the vibe in the studio was awesome uh i'm looking at my laptop throwing him a sample he puts it in he plays a little guitar all that stuff it was such a vibe 
his his then like two year old son came to sit in the studio floor for two hours to just do whatever little kids do and amazing. So we got this instrumental. I took it home. I sort of final produced it, mixed it, and whatever. And then like a year and a half later, this Finnish guy who I'm working with, a really great vocalist and 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 uh, writer, I told this story to him you know, guys getting back together and going out and having a great night out. And he wrote lyrics for that and sang it. And that's going to be my next single. And he nailed the story. He nailed the vibe. He nailed adding to whatever the track is style-wise, the vocal to it. And I'm so excited about that track coming out. I don't care if it doesn't do a blip on a radar it doesn't matter. Uh, that track is like a success already because I felt so strongly on so many occasions. Like I cried when I heard the vocal the first time. It was it was so so fitting and so cool. You feel like a kind of full circle moment as well. Absolutely. And um, one of the things as well that we were talking about, and looking forward to hearing that track. When's that out? Is that? Next year? Um, uh, actually, it could even come out still this year. We, um, uh, it sounds f- funny maybe, but we, uh, we're finalizing a couple of final details. And, uh, but like, you know, today the, the promo cycles are shorter than it, they used to be. So it could even have a release date still in 22. Yeah. Keep an eye out for that, everyone. One of the things that we were talking about just in terms of the, you know, the, the, the burnout side of stuff is, and people kind of forget that that human element. What's the longest run of gigs you've had, you know, back to back? My my longest tour ever was this seven week run in, in the States in well, 2003 or four or something like that. Uh, I think it was in 49 days or 50 days, I had seven days off. And let's just say I was quite messed up after that for a little while. <laughs> But then that that was that was a half of it was a bus tour and half of it was flying. And uh, if I could afford, honestly, doing a bus tour, both financially and then just logistically, it would be easy to do. That would be the most amazing thing to do because you could just crash in the bus after your gig and you'll just find yourself at the next city the next day. And that was very relaxing. Those two to uh, three weeks in a bus but at the same time it was go 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 night after night after night so it was rather rather crazy but um i'm i'm doing i've been doing like 40 to 80 gigs a year and i i know that's quite the bracket there but especially now i have two kids and a wife i'm trying to kind of be more more choosy about the the ones that i do and um, also you know it means a lot of travel days for me. So we kind of strategically try and um, like we kind of flipped the thinking earlier. It was I was giving windows for bookings and now I'm more so deciding windows for being home and uh, sort of whatever fits in the the other time will take. But the, the windows that I've decided to stay home are sort of locked and not not to be messed with. And I think for for anyone, it, it doesn't matter who you are. Like it, it, this is anyone. If you if you're on tour, if you've got multiple gigs for a long period of time, you obviously you don't get to see your family. You don't get to have that downtime. Do you think that sometimes gets overlooked? Sometimes you know it's just kind of like you, oh, you're expected it, to be enjoying yourself, you know, but not it, look at it the stress. It gets overlooked all the time. It gets overlooked all the time. I I can't tell any details because it's a it's a tight circle of trust but we have a a huge group uh, and growing of djs about 100 plus now in a whatsapp group that is all about mental health all about recovery from touring all about sort of travel tricks but not financial ones or anything but like what to do how to unwind and uh, all kinds of this kind of stuff. And um, it was actually started by Armin, Armin Van Buren after um, the passing of Avicii. And um, there's nobody's in it for anything else than uh, helping themselves and help, helping others. And it's a, it's a peer group that we, we share 
incredible stories of both big highs and big lows and just hearing other people having the same kind of problems challenges issues with with whatever this job brings is really really amazing for me and pretty much everybody in the group echoes the same thing do you feel the comfort in knowing that other people who are in the same boat as as you that that kind of feel feel the same yeah, I mean, the, the thing is, obviously, I don't want anybody else being miserable. That's not it. But it gives validation that my feelings are not dumb. My feelings uh, of, hey, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm being flown around the world and I should not complain, right? But, but it, it, it is taxing. There is, you know, different people have different anxieties about, you know, it might be just being on a plane, it might be being among people. A lot of producers, for instance, are highly introverted. They love being in the studio alone and doing this, uh, tinkering and this and that. And then they'll sort of have to go and perform so as to, you know, up, upkeep the career, get some, you know, money and whatnot. And it's not easy for everybody. Like, I, I actually love being on stage and I love talking people's ears off, like I'm sure you notice. But not everybody's like that. And, and they're still highly talented and they create this music that is to be performed live or DJed live. So, so that's, uh, that alone is one thing, but then it comes with really easy access to all kinds of, you know, booze and substances and sort of destructive lifestyle stuff. I'm not saying everybody does that, but there's access to it and it's uh, normalized also in our scene and uh, do that for 20 years and you could be quite messed up. And I think, I mean, men in particular are pretty bad at talking about their feelings and, and, you know, when they're actually feeling like it's actually a bit too much sometimes. Yeah, and I mean, like I said, this kind of group, I wish everybody had it in whatever uh, profession and, you know, circle they are because people don't talk about that stuff easy enough. Like um, mental health issues, any sort of stuff that is sort of, you know, you can easily think yourself like I'm being a little stupid or I'm, I'm being ashamed of saying this and that. People should just throw the being ashamed thing, you know, in a bin and just blurt out stuff because most of us have issues of various levels and you can't directly compare them. But when you realize other people do as well, it just validates your, your you know, bad juju, bad vibes or whatever. And it doesn't make you any less professional or, you know, any more, I don't know, dumb or something when, when, um, something's up. And then when you get to like, for me, I don't have to get answers from anybody. When I tell somebody my whatever feelings I'm having right now, you meaning negative stuff and this and that, just airing it out helps. Uh, you don't need to get direct answers or fixes for stuff, but you can just, uh, that that's part of the process to air it out. Yeah, totally. And I think that's a really good bookend to the episode. I think just one, well, it's actually a two-part question, I guess, um, just coming to the end of this episode is that how much of it, you know, do you think in this, in, in the industry that you're in is, you know, sheer grit and determination versus luck? Um, and I guess is the, the second part of that of, of you know if if any anybody you know wanting to get into to music now listening to this um, you know what would you say to people that aren't doing it for the, the 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 reasons like you said you know that pure love and they're doing it for other reasons like money or fame you know, what would you say to those in terms of you know doing something that you really love? Well, so first of all, I, I don't want to be like. A hypocrite here i am doing this for the money and fame in a certain way as well because this is my 24 7 job this is how i earn my living i support myself and my family so i'm not gonna try and say like i don't want money of course i do i know my worth but initially and why i do this is because i i fell in love with dance music and i realized i can make it i can make music in general I think that's how it should be because your love and passion for something like this will shine through and it will power you through, you know, lows. It will make the highs even higher and more enjoyable. And your audience will see when you do something genuinely. 
they will feel it, they will see it, they will dance with you harder when you dance harder and this and that. I, I think that's, it's such a cliche, but I think that is the most important thing. You're better off doing something exactly like you love. Also producers, even if you're highly skilled in all kinds of production, if you're making music for yourself, don't try to make music that you think somebody wants to hear. Make music that you want to make, make music that you want to hear, and I hope that pans out, but even if it doesn't, at least you make music that you're really proud of and you, you came from the heart. Then when you go around and promote yourself, don't be a dick. <laughs> like, <laughs> just just, just be, a, be a normal human being. Like, here's my track, listen to it, you can talk about it. Don't oversell shit or don't expect people to do favors. Just like, you, you have to, you know, what's the saying? Make your dues or pay your dues. You have to spend hours and, you know, days and years and whatnot and try again and don't count the, the occasions that something didn't happen, but count the ones that something, you know, happened, went through and you got that record signed or you got that gig or whatever and just enjoy that because those are the, the rewards that, you know, why you're doing the whole thing out of the love and then you get rewarded on top of that so don't uh, look for shortcuts no exactly and i know a lot of this can sound like this blah 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 cliche but trust me that's how it is and it's not only in dance music but it's or music in general it's everywhere when you get to do what you love you just you put everything into it and that sh you know shows yeah, beautiful. Well, dude, thank you very much for uh, talking with us. We really look forward to hearing that new track coming out uh, end of this year or beginning of the next. And thanks for talking with us. Thank you. And uh, one more plug I will do, if you allow. Uh, every Friday that I'm not on the road, uh, I am doing a stream on twitch.tv slash derude, and it's 6 p.m. finish time, which would be... 8 a.m. Los Angeles, West Coast time, and 11 East Coast. And then on the Australia side of the world, maybe 1 a.m. on a Saturday. So it's a little late there in the East, well, from me. And uh, I DJ and I check the chat. I chat with people. I'm here in my happy place in my studio. And uh, that's the most direct place that you can catch me live and, and have a convo with me pretty much. Yeah, awesome. Thanks very much. Thank you. This podcast was edited by Podlike. We provide expert audio and video production for podcasters and content creators. Find out more at podlike.online.